Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of Five Playing Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of the Indigenous Arts Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Kay Walkingstick. Kay Walkingstick is a Cherokee Anglo landscape painter and has had 30 solo shows in the U.S. and Europe. Her work is in the permanent collections of the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, the Museum of Canada in Ottawa, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, the Newark Museum in Newark, New Jersey, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian American Art Museum in D.C., and the Baltimore Museum of Art in Baltimore, Maryland, and many other museums across the country. Hale's Gallery represents her work in New York City and Europe. Walking Sick was a full professor at Cornell University for 17 years, where she taught painting and drawing. She is now an emerit professor. She was given an honorary doctorate by both Pratt Institute and by Arcadia University. She is a fellow at the National Academy of Design and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2015, her retrospective of 75 paintings and drawings covered the years of 1970 to 2015, opened at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., after closing the exhibition, it traveled to five venues across the country. The show was listed by Hyperallergetic, an online magazine, as one of the best 15 exhibitions to open nationwide in 2016. The New York Times gave the exhibition a full-page review written by Holland Cotter when it was shown at the Montclair Museum. Walking Sick and her husband, artist Dirk Bach, live and paint in a townhouse in Easton, Pennsylvania. Walking Stick has had an exhibition of her recent landscape paintings at Hale's Gallery in February and March of 2022. I'm very excited for this conversation. I'm very excited to be back for season four. So let's jump into this conversation with Kay Walking Stick. Kay Walking Stick, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Well, see you. See you. We Kay would you uh, be able to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your background, where you're from? Well, I was born in Syracuse, New York in 1935 during the Depression um, and grew up there. I left there when I was about 15, 16 to come with my mother to Philadelphia uh, to look after my sister who was ill. Um and she was married to a minister who had a church outside of Philadelphia. So <clears throat> um, I graduated from high school in in uh, this little town outside of Philadelphia, um, Beth Ayers, PA. Um, so that's my that's where I started out in in Syracuse, New York. I'm used to cold weather. Uh, I've always thought that. You know, you had to be a very good person to get to live in a warm climate. (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, Never quite made it, apparently. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about um, your your early career? What led you from uh, your high school days and into your career? Well, I, I grew up in a family of artists. And we had paintings in the house all the time. Um, my um, 
older brother, uh, Mac, uh, he preferred to be called Charles, but everybody called him Mac anyway, um, uh, was a wonderful artist. He drew beautifully. And my other siblings were, uh, drew some too. Uh, uh, but my, I had two uncles who were professional artists. Um, there were artists in the uh, uh, older people as well. I had a couple of great uncles who were artists. So there was um, a lot of art making in the family and a lot of awareness of art. Um, and so I grew up thinking that I would be an artist. Uh, I really wanted to be a dress designer when I started. I love clothes. I still have clothes to this day. And I thought it would be great fun to be a dress designer. So I drew a lot of clothing and young women in clothes and stuff like that. And I like to tell people that I learned to draw in church because I would be given paper and pencil uh, for the hour and a half long sermons that I would have to sit through as a little kid. And so I would sit there and draw. And I always drew easily and well. It's always been something I could do. So I grew up thinking that I would somehow utilize that. I went to, I didn't go to a college right away out of high school. Uh, there wasn't money for me to go away to school. And I just kind of didn't know what the heck to do. So I worked for a couple of years and then got a scholarship uh, to Beaver College, which is in um, Glenside, Pennsylvania, also in, was in Jenkintown then, which was a short drive from where I live. So I could live at home and continue working. I was a telephone operator for Belltel. Um, number please, that sort of thing. Um, so I continued doing that while I was in college. So I worked about, oh, 20 hours a week. So I could pay for my equipment and, and things like that. And um, I would work in the summertime to pay my tuition. Tuition was low in those days. And um, I had a half tuition scholarship. So I was fine. You know, I, I had a nice time in, in college, different from somebody who lives away. Um, but I enjoyed the freedom of living at home. And I enjoyed my mother's company. So it was nice. And I got a lot out of it. It was a good... I got a good education at Beaver. Uh, it was it's a it was a small woman's college in those days, and um, it wasn't an elitist school at all, like Bryn Mawr or anything. But it was I got a pretty good education, all things considered, and um, I'm sure that there were better schools. But it was what I could do, you know. And it was a I guess, as I said, it was a good education. What was the focus of your studies? Oh, painting. I studied art. Mm -hmm. I studied art history and art. And um, so I have a, a BFA. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. Um, I also had to take a, a lot of basic um, um, humanities courses. I took a couple of, and then I also had to take a couple of science courses and um, language and you know, basic um, 
education. You know, that's what I was doing is I was trying to get educated. And the reason I went to college is I felt I needed educated. Uh, I was had been told all my life that a smart little girl should make something of herself. And I was that smart little girl who knew that she had to get an education to make anything of myself. I was driven. I mean, I was a kid that was driven. Uh, in spite of the fact that I took those two years off, it was always on my head, you know, what I should have been doing rather than just, you know, working for Beltel. Let's talk about influences. Um, who, who were your influences early on and uh, who are your influences uh, today? Um. The the biggest influence I ever had in my life was my mother. And as I said, I, I lived with her th- through my college years. So until I got, you know, left home and got married and uh, I was with my mother and she was um, a white woman. Um, she was um, had worked all her life, um, left my father. uh Right before I was born, uh, she had four other children, so we were a family of five siblings. Um, so she, and it's throughout the the years. She, as I said, she worked, uh, took in washing during the depression, um, worked in a factory during the war. Um, had life had not been easy for her, but she had maintained a. Uh, a spirit that is was remarkable. She was very strong in that she believed in her children and uh, believed that we could do big things. Um, she not only told me, you know, as a smart little girl, do something with my life, but she also said that we should be proud to be Indians, to be proud to be a Cherokee, to be proud to have that wonderful Cherokee name. And we always have been. Uh, we were, you know, we always stood with the Indians. Uh, <clears throat> and she was um, very, very firm about I had to get an education. If I was going to make something of myself, I had to have an education. And she was sweet-tempered with it all. She was always smiling, always happy. Used to dance in the morning in the kitchen. And she was just, um, she was a remarkable woman. And if there's anybody who I would model my behavior on, it was she. Um, Artistically, my teachers influenced me some. Um, reading influenced me tremendously. Uh, I was a, always a big reader, and uh, so I read about art all the time and artists. Um, but as far as what I did in the studio, I can't say I've had major influences you know i can remember admiring frank stella and uh 
Jasper Johns. Um, but I don't paint like that. Never have. You know, there's a lot of... Um, I, I like to go to museums. And I really enjoy looking at all of the art. Uh, Islamic art, for instance, or Chinese art, or uh, American art, uh, and certainly Native American art. But to say one person has influenced me artistically, I can't actually pick somebody out. I can say, gee, I like so-and-so at a time. I happen to love John Singer Sargent because he was a master at putting paint down and he could draw like a son of a gun. Uh, so that I'm, I'm a big fan of his work, but golly, I have never aspired to painting like him. I couldn't actually, if I, maybe if I could, I would. Um, but I'm doing landscape now. Um, I didn't, I mean, landscape has not been a focus the whole, my whole career. Um, although it certainly snuck in or sneaked in, it maybe is the proper uh, English, um, many times. Uh, but who among the landscape artists do I really admire? Gee, I don't know. Um, I've always liked Hartley, uh, Marston Hartley, uh, because he's kind of galumphy with all of his landscapes. There's sort of an awkwardness that I admire because it sort of represents who we are, really, you know. Mm -hmm. We're not all that graceful to be humans. <laughs> And um, there are certainly others, but I have a good, solid background in art history. You know, a lot of young artists today don't. I don't know why that is, but they'll, you know, be interested in one group, you know, the constructivists, for instance, and not know anything else. Uh, or they won't know any art history. They'll only know contemporary work. Uh, so I think that 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 firm grounding in our history that I have, um, uh, for instance, I love Quattrocento painting in Italy. I mean, it's just divine. Of course, it's meant to be divine. But, it, you know, you mention Quattrocento painting to a lot of young people and they look at you like you're this crazy old lady. So. I think that all of that art history and all of that study and all of that looking when I travel, my point of travel is to go to the museums uh, and, of course, the mountains. Um, but I think all of that uh, art history study is, has really been the big influence in my life. Besides, as I said, my mother, who is determined that I was going to make something of myself, and I've been trying to fulfill her desire ever since. Still working on it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, is is there a, an overall influence that's, um, uh, I guess, 
are there factors that are influencing your work uh, these days? You know, I think that it's ideas that have influenced me more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea uh, that um, this really is our land, and darn it, people ought to recognize that fully. Um, I read an article by, what was his name, John Pierce or Joseph Pierce? He's a Cherokee scholar and teaches at, um, out of Stony Brook. And he wrote an article about, um, thanks. It shouldn't be Thanksgiving. It should be thanks taking that what has happened is that our land has been taken. Uh, and that's kind of been the focus of my work for the last, Oh, I don't know, 15 years, I guess. Um, is that we're all living on Indian territory. All of us, every American. And that ought to be recognized. That ought to be seen. And those treaties that haven't been fulfilled should be. But beyond that, there ought to be a recognition that this is Indian land, where uh, everybody else are guests. And very often unwanted guests. But I think that that's the theme of what I'm doing today. And I'm painting our beautiful country. Um, I want people to see it as beautiful. I also want people to see it as this is something that we have to work at maintaining and saving. Um, I just did a painting of the, uh, of uh, Niagara Falls. And there's a lot of 19th century paintings of Niagara Falls. And and there's, there's a few at the Met and there's a, few at uh, the New York Historical Society, and, and they're all over. I mean, you know, all over the East. And um, Niagara Falls is uh, certainly iconic. Uh, there's nothing like it anywhere else. And there's a lot of nice falls, you know, a lot of nice cascades. But uh, So I painted Niagara, and at the bottom there's a... Um, a reproduction of a part of a mohawk pattern from a, um, a, it's a jar, it's a ceramic piece, a very simple um, mohawk pattern. But what I've been doing is painting uh, these beautiful landscapes and adding patterns that are from the people who uh, live there still very often or have, for whatever reason, are not living there, <clears throat> but did. I mean, I did a one, I did a painting based on a, 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 a Thomas Cole. A little, it's a little painting. It's not big. It's about 48 inches long. I mean, it's, not, it's maybe not even that. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, it's a copy of the famous Oxbow painting that he did from, it's from um, 
Holyoke, Massachusetts, not Holyoke, Massachusetts, I believe is the place. Anyway, it's um, it's this uh, oxbow painting of the river there. And <clears throat> I changed the composition because I didn't want to do an exact copy, so I made it a double square, which is what I work with, is double squares in their uh, diptychs. But this is simply a double square, and it has a, a pattern on it from the Potomkets who lived there um, years ago, long time ago, and were the original people from that area. And they, um, they were um, actually there was a, a battle between them and the Mohawks. The Mohawks won and all the people who lived through it ran off and joined another tribe. Um, very smartly went off to a, a bigger group, right? Um, so that these people are no longer there. Uh, but the people aren't in the painting either, right? <clears throat> so I named the painting Tom, where are the Potomkins? And they're, I mean, I think that everybody in the, who has any education in the arts would recognize the uh, Thomas Cole's Oxbow painting. It's one of the most famous American art paintings after all. Um, so I, I did this pointing out this landscape, which you can still see, it's still there, uh, and adding this a note about why didn't he put any native people? Why is there no no um, reference to those native people in his painting? Uh, and there isn't, of course. So that's what I do. I make landscapes and I put native patterns in them, and to remind people that this is native land and that the land is gorgeous, and they ought to try to save it. We have to try to save it. So uh, the next question would be about uh, your career, um, both uh, in college uh, and certainly post-college. After college, I was I was out of school for uh, 10 years. I went to, uh, I, I married and had a couple of kids and um, my husband and I, um, uh, my husband was an editor for a magazine and um their pay is about equal to museum workers and <laughs> <laughs> journalism isn't really great. But anyway, um, I had a lovely husband and two wonderful children who are still around. Thank God. And, um, the, um, I developed my painting throughout that period. I continued painting. Um, money was tight quite a bit of the time, so I sometimes couldn't afford to paint, but I would draw all the time. I decided that I really wanted to get better. And I knew that the quickest way to get better as a painter was to go back to school. And so I, I was determined to go back to graduate school. And um, I applied for a Danforth Fellowship for Women and um, darned if I didn't win it and got a, a a full scholarship fellowship to graduate school. And plus they were willing to pay babysitting if I had it. And uh, they took care of um, expenses like, you know, painting expenses. And I don't think they covered the travel. 
but it was a very generous scholarship that I won to uh, Pratt Institute. So I went to Pratt for graduate school and again lived at home and took care of family and um, was home for dinner every night, you know, and um, drove back and forth to Brooklyn, which was um, something of a challenge, but became interesting after a while. And uh, I got to see the all the bridges and the rooftops, and it was kind of fascinating. And um, did that for two years. When I got out, um, I got a, a part-time teaching jobs, but I really couldn't get anything full-time in in New York. There's just too many artists looking for teaching gigs, you know. Um, but anyway, I... Um, Continued painting, uh, tried to show in, um, and mostly showed locally in New Jersey. Um, I went to, uh, I had had a, I'd had a New York gallery <clears throat> before I went to graduate school. I mean, before I went to graduate school, I was very, very active painting. Um, I just felt that I needed to get better, as I said. Um, but I had a a, um, a gallery called Cannabis, of all things, and um, they said that the, the, uh, their their phones were tapped all the time because of the name of the gallery. Um, anyway, I sh- I showed there, and um, I, I and then, as I said, I went to graduate school in um, I think it was seventy two or three. Must have been, yeah. Um, so I I did a series of figure paintings, um, hard edge figure paintings in space in acrylic. Rather um, started very pale colors. The pale the colors became quite bright. And the funny thing is, is that when I show them, I, I show them a few local places. You know, there was no particular interest and. Um, I sold them for, you know, to friends for like two, three hundred dollars, the cost of making them basically. And darned if those paintings are not interesting to people now, uh, one of them is in the Newark Museum, and I believe it's up. Uh, one, it belongs to the Whitney. One belongs to the Baltimore Museum. One belongs to the Smithsonian Museum of Art in D.C. And another belongs to some museum in uh, Moulin, France, who loaned the painting to the Toledo Museum, who has it up right now. These paintings, these feminist paintings is what they are. I did in the early 70s, uh, 69 through about 72, uh, are very interesting to museums now because they weren't collecting women's art when women were making the feminist art of the 70s. Those early 70s feminists are just now 
becoming interesting and, and, and collectible to museums. Bizarre. So this went on. Th these paintings were before I went to graduate school. Uh, I went to graduate school and started doing, I did a series of paintings about my work aprons because I was living this double life. You know, I was looking after my family. As I said, I was home cooking supper every night. Uh, I was looking after my family and I was thought of myself as a full-time mom. And yet I was also a full-time grad student. And so I was a full-time artist and a full-time mom is the way it kind of was for me, <clears throat> which was fine. I mean, I had a lot of energy. And so I made these aprons that are spattered with paint. Those also, because of this uh, feminist tie, I guess, have been interesting to a number of uh, museums. And the Whitney has one up right now. Has a, uh, it's called Gray Apron, and it has hand marks all over it. So it's funny that, I mean, I think it's odd to me that, or maybe it isn't, maybe that's the way the world works. But these paintings that I did when I was really very young are really very, very big now. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I don't know how it happened, but it did. I think that that observation um, is, is so on point. Um, I, I feel that to a degree, um, my conversation with uh, Jean-Claude de C. Smith, it, it's, it's something similar as well. The time it's taking uh, everyone to catch up to um, what you're all doing, you know, because I mean, even in uh, Native art history courses that I took early in college, they, all, they only talked about the men that were doing the work. And That's right. We're, I, feel, I feel like we're finally in a place now where we can acknowledge the work, you know, that everyone is doing, you know, and sort of balancing out the story. There's a long ways to go, of course. The feminist art just wasn't collected at all because the guys weren't doing that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that hasn't been collected. And so that's um, really those two series of paintings that I did uh, were were really feminist paintings. Uh, in graduate school, <clears throat> I decided that it was time that I deal with this notion of my Indian father and how he would interest and influence me, but also the fact that I'm physically, you know, you know, a descendant of his. I'm, I carry his DNA. <clears throat> Um, I think I look like him. Um, I'm sort of big and I was always very strong. I'm not so strong anymore, but I was always very strong like he was. And um, I figured that it was time that I faced the whole thing of not only his his presence in me, but his heritage. And um, I had never really dealt with that artistically before. I certainly thought about it a lot because my mother and my siblings, who my siblings who grew, you know, really knew him, talked about him all the time, and talked about their life in Oklahoma, and talked about 
their experiences in Oklahoma. And so that there, there were all these ideas and, you know, ideas are powerful. Uh, these ideas about being a Cherokee and uh, living in Oklahoma and being part of that um, life there. Um, but I decided that I should deal with it in my paintings as well. And I made a, um, I made a, a teepee of sorts out of canvas and um, one by twos and string. And I mean, it was, you know, kind of a, a kid stuff. In fact, my neighbor, when I was making it, I had it outside to, to because I was pouring paint on it. Um, it was this, you know, 20th century modernist teepee. And she said, oh, isn't that sweet? You're making a teepee for your kids. And I just laughed. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, it was about eight feet tall. So it wasn't a full size at all. And um, I could, but I could go in it. And I, I made it as a memorial to my father. And I wrote a letter and hung it at the letter in strips. Uh, my father spoke Cherokee, so I I, uh, I copied the Lord's Prayer, I think, in Cherokee, uh, because it's the only thing I had that actually was in Cherokee. And, um, uh, you know, we didn't have computers then, so you couldn't look up anything. Um, this was in 1970. Oh gosh, 1970, um, must have been three. Uh, maybe, yeah. And um, so I made this teepee and uh, I put black strips around the exterior of it <clears throat> to indicate that he was gone, but also that I, did, I didn't want people going in it. Uh, disturbing my letter. And, and so it was a very private kind of thing. I went, I could go in there and sit in there, you know, and I did to hang these, these letters from strips of cloth from the center of it. Um, a very private kind of reconciliation. Um, I had been angry with them all my life for um, abandoning us in a sense. And um, abandoning us to alcohol, basically. And I wrote a letter asking him to forgive me for that anger and also forgiving him. Uh, he was who he was for whatever multiple reasons. And um, so it was a... It was about reconciliation for me, that, that TP. And um, once that was over, you know, I started making paintings about my <clears throat> Indian heritage. I also started pouring paint because I had poured this, poured the paint on the uh, TP. I started pouring paint. I started using the shapes the negative shapes that of the art uh, the drape of the fabric the the aprons had that same shape that festoon shape so that 
Uh, and the bridges that I saw every day driving to school had uh, they were had drapes at the bottom to um, to catch. They were painting the bridges, and the uh, they had drapes at the bottom to catch the the paint cans. But also, of course, if anybody fell, so they had these huge net uh, drapes in the on the bridges underneath them. Uh, so that I was seeing this shape every day going to school in the in the in the bridges. Uh, but I was also seeing it in my own work in the aprons. And then, of course, when I made this teepee and I did some support drawings, you know, of course, for it, of course. And so I kept seeing this this arc, this drape, this festoon shape. And so I was using that festoon shape uh, in my paintings. I did some paintings of uh, a draped shape which resemble a stretched hide sort of, but it's it's very abstracted, very simplified, uh, that related to the stretched uh, catchers that were under the under the bridges. So all these shapes sort of added up. And so I was using them in the paintings and I did a painting um, uh, for John Ridge, who was the Cherokee who, who led the um, people to Oklahoma and really was caught in a bind because there was uh, there were not a lot of choices for those uh, people in 1839, whatever it was. Um, and he was later uh, killed. He was later assassinated hmm. by the other faction in the uh, of the Cherokees. So he had a rather, you'd have to say tragic life. He was an important guy who had a tragic life. So I, I did a painting about John Ridge. I did a, um, I think I did, I started doing the Chief Joseph pieces then um, and dealt with um, Indian history basically. The reason that I chose Chief Joseph to focus upon is that it was um, I was visiting my mother, and at that time, my mother and father got together very briefly. Um, they were both in their sixties by then, and um, I I said to him, I said, you know, who do you consider was a truly great Indian? And he said, well, of course, Chief Joseph. And I had never, I didn't know anything about Chief Joseph when I asked this question. But he said, Chief Joseph. So I started researching Chief Joseph. And of course, there's every reason to believe that he's a great, he's a great, great American is what he is. Uh, but only one of many other Native people. But he was, he was the one that was important to my father. Uh, partly is because he was alive during my father's lifetime. Um, the the battles, um, the Chief Joseph's battles with the um, cavalry in in uh, Montana were <coughs> in 1877. <coughs> uh, 
But he didn't die until, I believe, the 20s. And so my father was born in 1896. So he was a young man uh, while Chief Joseph was still with us. And there was a, a lot of um, newspaper articles about him during his lifetime. Chief Joseph, I mean, not my father. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I digress. Um, anyway, I started doing research about Chief Joseph, did a long series about Chief Joseph in small paintings. And it's meant to be a, a like a dirge that you walk past and it's all in black with uh, compliments underneath the black. So there's like a a, a, a red and a, a underlay with a green underlay and then a black so that these there's lines that are cut into it. There's lines that are remaindered into it that reveal these underlying complementary colors. But the paintings are primarily black. Um, the, and uh, the National Museum of American Indian owns them now. Uh, but I did... I think I did 36 or 37 of them. There's a couple that were purchased that are floating around the country, but the, the main body of them are owned by the NMAI. <clears throat> I did those primarily in graduate school, along with a lot of other paintings of, that had to do with Native history. Um, and then I graduated. And... Um, I uh, eventually got a gallery, uh, connected with a gallery called Bertha Erdang, who was an Israeli. And uh, I, I showed with her for about 10 years. But, <clears throat> and, and she didn't sell a lot, I must say. But my paintings were simply not that interesting to people. Uh, they, they were written about a little bit. Um, and I, uh, when I was in graduate school, I was, uh, doing, um, I did the, the TP in graduate school and other things, but I remember a, a faculty member saying to me, uh, that's all very interesting, Kay, but nobody buys ethnic art. And I think that he was actually, I mean, it sounds downright racist to me now to say that, but um, but I think that there was a, a kernel of truth in that, that in the, the 70s and 80s, uh, you couldn't sell something that was Indian, it was related to Indians, and not in New York at least, maybe in the Southwest, but certainly not in New York. So that does uh, lead us into the the next question of of opportunities. Um, how have they presented themselves to you over the years, and how have those opportunities changed over time? Well, you know, um, I realized early on that you make opportunities. You can make opportunities yourself, and. Uh, so I I used to, while my family was sleeping on Sunday morning, I would write letters to museums sending and send out slides. That's what we had slides. We, it was all pre uh, pre digital, and um, 
I don't know whether that did me any good or not, but I did, I did connect with, uh, uh, as I said, a, a dealer, Bertha Erdang. In order to do that, I rented a, a, a portion of somebody's studio in New York. I've forgotten her name. Um, and stored my work at her place. I was a, a selection of my paintings at her place. And every once in a while, I'd get somebody to come and see the work there. And I paid her a monthly fee just to store my work there and use the space, oh, maybe three hours a month. You know, it was, I, I certainly didn't get a lot of people to come to see my work. But I did. And that's how I, I connected with Bertha Erdang. Um, Bertha Erdang said to me uh, that she thought the Native people and we weren't called indigenous people then. We were Indians or Native Americans. Anyway, she thought the Native people were uh, the only other group of people who had suffered genocide as the Jews had. As I said, she was an Israeli. So she felt this uh, this strong tie with me because of that. I don't know if that's a good reason, but it was who she was. I mean, that's what was important to her. So, um, But I certainly couldn't get other people interested in my work. Uh, and I was showing those little um, uh, Chief Joseph pieces. One dealer told me to uh, put them a pile of them together in my backyard and start a bonfire, burn them up, which I thought was incredibly hateful to say to anybody. You could just say, thank you, I don't want the work. But he advised that I burn them. Uh, so I'd had some nasty experiences with people. Uh, one woman in a gallery, a director, otherwise intelligent woman, sat and laughed for five minutes when she heard my name. Said it was the funniest name she'd ever heard in her life. Um, just really strange, hateful things. Um, as I said, I, I think that we made, everybody has to make opportunities. Uh, I was a woman, and uh, so I was suspect. You know, pretty woman, for God's sake, you know, there's suspect. Who would trust a, a, a woman to... Uh, actually make art all, all of her life. You know, that's kind of the way that a lot of dealers thought. Uh, and a married woman at that, uh, she'll go off and have babies. You know, it, it, there was, we were suspect women. And uh, on top of that, I was Indian. Um, Indians sit in the plaza in Santa Fe, don't they? You know, they don't actually make serious art, do they? So there was uh, there was always these roadblocks. Uh, on the other hand, um, I'm the most persistent person I know. And I did believe that I was doing something worthwhile. I didn't think it was great painting or anything like that. I just thought it was worthwhile. And so I continued uh, trying to show it. And um, 
there were some, uh, at about that time, uh, Jean quick to see saw my work in a magazine and contacted me and, uh, asked me if I wanted to be in a show. And I said, yes, I did. I, I thought it was, I, it was, I thought it was important for me to do that. I had, uh, two dealers by then. I had a, a dealer named, uh, uh, Sig Winger in California. Maybe not yet. Maybe I hadn't, maybe I hadn't connected with him yet. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> Bertha Erdang said, absolutely don't do that. Absolutely don't do that. Biggest mistake of your life. Uh, because you don't want to be associated with other native artists. Um, and I talked to a couple of other people. They said the same thing. Don't do that. And I thought, screw them. What was their reasoning? Why? Because, you know, Indians, as I said before, they, in their mind, Indians only do feathers and beads. You know, they only do paintings that are about uh, romanticized Indians. They only do paintings that uh, they don't do. <clears throat> they couldn't take the work seriously done by other Native people because they hadn't seen enough of it. And so they all had this association of, oh, well, that's what you see in the um, uh, plaza at Santa Fe. It's um, feathers and beads. And so they, they couldn't, they didn't think of it as a, what a serious artist should do. And I thought, as I said, this is my career, screw you. And I, I also felt that as a Native person, I wanted to stand with the Indians. Uh, so I went ahead and showed. And uh, I think I showed those. I think the first show I did was a woman's show at, in Anadarko. And... Uh, Emmy Whitehorse was in it, and I was in it, and Jean was in it, a couple other women. And uh, I showed those Chief Joseph pieces, uh, which no one could call anything but serious. It was New York minimalism, you know. Um, it wasn't so minimal, but it was certainly reductive abstraction uh, that I was doing. And, uh, but... I believe for me, it was important to show with Native people. Uh, and my dealer got over it, you know, they do. And as I said, it was my career and I had to live it my way. So I did show with a lot of, I did show in a lot of Native shows over the years. Uh, if you look at my resume, there's a whole lot of shows, many of them uh, curated by Jean, uh, who was busily constructing a, um, 
edifice. I think she was going to make people see Native art as serious. The I did get something did happen in, that was interesting. And <clears throat> in, um, oh golly, I don't know, eighty five maybe was it? No, no, not not that late. It was in the eighties, early eighties. Um, a guy named Sinkwenger from California and his wife came into the gallery in uh, at Bertha Erdang's, saw my work there, liked it, called me up, and asked me if I wanted to to show in California. And of course, I jumped at that because I thought it was so cool. <clears throat> Never been to California. He had a gallery in La Jolla, uh, which I was absolutely blown away by. And uh, I mean, what a, I mean, physically, the landscape in La Jolla is just astonishing. And so anyway, I went out there and um, it kind of changed my thinking about art making because I'd been making up until that time very, I did abstraction, I was pure abstraction for about 10 years after I got out of uh, uh, grad school. So I got out of grad school in 75 and I had started to do pure abstraction, as I said, using these shapes that, um, these arc shapes that came out of draped fabric mostly. and I was involved, very involved with the paint surface itself, of course. I mean, maybe it was part of the dialogue of the era, but probably was. But um, I was very involved in the, the, the medium, the, what the medium actually said to the viewer. Uh, what does this surface of paint tell you? And so the, the the medium itself became important and I was developing the medium with a wax. I was using acrylic by that time. I was trained in oil, but I, I was using acrylic and I started using the wax actually in, in uh, grad school. And um, so those early uh, pieces like for John Ridge, have wax and acrylic in them as well as poured paint. Uh, but the the developing the medium, I was I was trying to find uh, a personal form language really, and I wanted to paint about the content was important to me, but the the paint itself was just as important. The way the painting was made was just as important. This notion that the um, content is carried through the medium uh, was important to me. So I added um, wax to the painting. And the paintings um, early on. And uh, but I was adding small amounts, and I was getting it the wax from a door, company named Dorland in California, and it was a wax made for batiking. But because acrylic is a water-based uh, paint, it has polymers and and water, right? And 
and pigment. And by mixing it with a water-based wax, which Darwin's was, was uh, it had water in it, then it would mix, it was, it was compatible. Uh, so I was mixing this, this wax into it. And um, eventually I couldn't get any more of the wax because their wax for some reason deteriorated on the shelves apparently. So I started making my own. I got a, I had a chemist friend who told me, uh, he was a, a um, chemist with um, um makeup and and uh, face creams and things like that and he um he, so he told me how to make a a wax using a water and and uh, uh, a natural wax beeswax um adding an emulsifier and this is what i did eventually i made my own wax but um the wax emulsion is what it is it's a saponified wax is what it's called actually and it's of it's sapone means um soap in italian and uh it's it's made the way soap is made the the uh, saponified wax at any rate i had been adding saponified wax to the paint and uh throughout the early 80s i was making this saponified wax and making these paintings and they're very uh reduced um, as far as form is concerned, very heavy with, as far as the medium itself is concerned, the medium was really, um, uh, became thicker and thicker. The paintings became bigger and bigger. And, uh, the whole, the darn paintings were, you know, weighed 60 pounds by the time I was finished with them. And, um, so I was making these huge things. Uh, and I made them for about 10 years. <clears throat> At any rate, um, I still have a bunch of them in my, my uh, storage. Anyway, um, I went out to California, and then I went to Durango to teach for a semester. And um, I was just totally enamored with the landscape. And realized that I had to find a way to incorporate the landscape into my painting somehow. Uh, you know, I'd been doing these big abstractions in my attic in my home in Englewood, New Jersey. And they were really about the things, they were about putting together forms and uh, finding ways to imply things through very simple means you know the simple shapes and um this fascinating medium that i had developed from acrylic paint and and wax um and then i realized that i really had to sort of change directions and i did uh and i started doing landscapes still painting with my hands because the the, uh, the uh, wax and acrylic paints were completely made with my hands I used no brushes or anything and uh, so then I started making these landscapes combined with abstractions I started doing diptychs 
1986, I think, five or six. And um, a whole lot of people told me I was nuts. Um, but I thought that they made sense together. You know, it was like a, um, a, a stanzas of a poem or they, they were an abstraction. The abstraction was not an abstraction of a landscape. It was more like the extension of a landscape. Since I was doing um, landscape, since I was doing the scene world, and I certainly wouldn't call it <clears throat> naturalism or, or high realism. It was, but I was using imagery, right? And the, my dealer, Bertha Erdang, didn't show imagery. She showed abstraction only. Consequently, I thought this is stupid to show with, continue showing with her. She's not going to want to see this. So I left her. I left the dealer. Um, I left and it was probably time anyway, but certainly the image and she, and she said at the time, well, you could have let me make the choice. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make that choice myself. <clears throat> and I found another dealer. Um, his uh, name was Howard Scott at M13 in in uh, Soho also. Uh, Bertha Erdang had been uptown, but this was in Soho, and Soho was a, a big deal then. <clears throat> this must have, as I said, this was uh, about 85, 86, something like that. And um, I showed with him for a while. Um, he, he was uh, a perfectly lovely guy, but uh, couldn't sell my work at all. <clears throat> but nobody could. My work did not sell well, ever. Um, and I'm not sure why, but... Um, well, there's more to this story. Um, <clears throat> in, in 1989, my husband of almost 30 years passed away very suddenly. And he had always been very supportive of the painting. And um, I had, of course, you know, um, I believe we all needed a job. And I was, of course, teaching the whole time. Um, but I never taught full time. He always agreed that I should have painting time and um, admired my painting. He loved my painting. And he truly believed that uh, he could support us when we were young and I would support us when we were old because I would be a, a major American artist by then. God bless him. Uh, <clears throat> And so that was a very supportive idea uh, that, uh, from him. At any rate, he passed in 89, very, very suddenly. And uh, there I was, left without my axis mundi. And um, I, I started painting about that experience. And I did a, about a year's worth of work about, and there were diptychs 
um, using uh, landscape, um, mostly landscape that was local. I was living in, uh, by then I was teaching at Cornell and uh, I was using the uh, landscape of, around Cornell, which is very, uh, there's a very rugged gorge, a lot of gorges and uh, um, cascades, a lot of um, waterfalls. So I was using those with, combined with the abstractions that I had been doing with saponified wax. And as I said, the, um, they were like stanzas of a poem. You know, they, they were connected, but not the same. And for me, at least, one, one side was primarily about our present beautiful world. And the other was about an outside world, another world, um, the next world, perhaps, or uh, the imagined world, or the interior world. There was a lot of ways for me to look at it, and I did over the years, but it was certainly um, not... Uh, simply about a um, um, a native view and a non-native view. It really wasn't about that. It's sometimes read that way, but it really wasn't. It was about a, a spiritual idea of the exterior and the interior or the um, die, uh, the um, seen world and the unseen world. I did those paintings for a very long time, and again, about 10 years, I think. Um, and um, I showed them at, at um, Howard Scott. And then um, I realized that Howard Scott really didn't know what I was doing, and that's why he couldn't sell them. Um, bless him, but he hung a painting upside down and I realized then that he didn't get it, uh, which was okay, except that it wasn't, he wasn't the person to sell them if he didn't get it. Uh, so I left him and um, went on to uh, uh, June Kelly uh, who I showed with for over 25 years. Um, and throughout this time, um, Native artists were being more and more accepted. I think largely because of Jean's work. Uh, I mean, there are other people, of, of course, um, but it was, you know, Jean who was really working at it. Uh, and I, I showed a lot. God knows. I showed a lot. Um, I was invited to show in, in groups other than native groups. Um, and, um, I was, um, in the nineties, I, I did a lot of, uh, lectures around the country. I was traveling around the country, um, and that was kind of exciting. It got me out of Ithaca, 
uh, which was pretty deadly. Um, and that was fun. I met a lot of people around the country that way. And um, I talked about painting all the time, of course. And the paintings, the paintings changed, but paintings do change. You know, our lives change. And I've always thought that everything that we do and we see and we experience, it gets into the paintings eventually, that it enters the paintings. Um, the paintings are an extension of us, you know. And um, so the paintings changed as my life changed. Um, being alone, um, um, I had a lot of uh, time to meditate, <laughs> for sure. Um, but it also, I was had a lot of time to paint. I was teaching uh, usually three, three and a half days a week uh, at Cornell. And uh, so I had time to paint. And, you know, it isn't the kind of place that people came to visit my studio. Um, but I was... I was kind of isolated. I mean, you know, it's, um, they say it's Ithaca essentially isolated, and it is. Hmm. Um, so um, I was I was at Cornell for uh, seventeen years. Uh, I went there the year before my husband passed. Uh, and uh, the the great thing that Cornell gave me was, and it was a great place to teach. I mean, you know, it just was, um, even though it was isolated. Um, what it really gave me was three semesters in Rome because we had a Rome program and I was able to teach there at three different semesters. And that was an uh, an amazing experience because and it changed the direction of my painting uh, my first trip to rome was in uh 90 uh, i think it was 6 96 maybe 95 but i think it was 96 anyway i went to rome and saw all these caravaggios and <laughs> Uh, a whole lot of other stuff. And I stopped painting with my hands. I mean, not immediately, but that's what came out of it. I stopped painting my hands and, and went back to painting with a brush, which I hadn't used uh, for 30 years. And um, I started thinking about using figures again. Uh, in the paintings. And one of the reasons the figures weren't there was it was about the landscape. And as soon as you put a figure in a landscape, it's no longer about the landscape. Mm. It's like putting, uh, my husband paints dogs and he says the reason he puts the dogs in is so the painting won't be a still life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's a wonderful painter. <laughs> and he loves dogs. But, um, Anyway, um, I decided that, um, you know, I would try some other things, put, started putting figures of different sorts in my paintings, um, started using gold leaf uh, because of all these churches that were covered with gold that had been stolen out of the Americas. Um, 
And it's true, they had. They had. Um, and this gold sort of representing this inner self or this uh, heavenly space or these, these, these outside of, of daily reality kind of places, spaces, uh, gold represented to me. So I used a lot of gold. Uh, and um, I mean, it really just changing, going back to brushes was big. And um, introducing figures was really big. And that is really what's happened over the next, oh, five or so years. Uh, I started incorporating figures into the paintings. And very often the figures were dancing. Um, I was involved in my head with dancing. I didn't actually do it, but, uh, there's a lot of dancing figures. Dancing figures represent joy usually. Um, and they're, of course, a dancer is very physical so that there, there's a lot of, uh, um, the figures themselves that you paint are, are active. Uh, and it was a wonderfully uh, expanding time for me, very wonderfully expanding in, in a lot of ways. Um, but by then I really had, I think, full control of what I was doing. Um, and that's good. I mean, you know, to feel that I, I really had the the um, the technique of painting, the the skill of painting down fully. Now, maybe I had for years and years before that, but going back to brushes was a big step in that. I think the kind of sad now we're down to the, the last question um i really enjoyed this this <laughs> i really enjoyed this this has been wonderful um what what would you say to the the 18 or 22 year old listener um that's yeah that's listening to this conversation well i think that i think that there's something important that has happened in the last few years that's important um but I, I've had a very long career and I've gone through a lot of changes. And uh, after um, Rome and after leaving Cornell, I, I started um, making paintings that were just landscapes that were not, they had no figures in them. And there was no abstraction in them other than the abstraction of the um, wonderful native patterns that I have used. And those native patterns are put on with a stencil. I make a stencil and I apply them uh, with oil paint, but I use a stencil brush rather than a standard brush. And so that there's a texture on those um, patterns is different than the texture of the oil paint itself. Um, so I went through other artistic changes after my experience with Rome, which uh, was over. The last time I went to Rome was in 2003. Um, 
but I was uh, have been showing my work uh, regularly, and um, I was invited to do uh, some shows in um, oh, I guess it was two thousand eighteen or nineteen. I'm not sure. Um, this was uh, uh, shows a couple of shows put together by museums. Uh, one of them was about a Native American women. Uh, it was a very successful show and it traveled around the country. And then there was another one uh, in Crystal Bridges, which I forgot the name of that show too. But <clears throat> uh, these were shows that were not just showing current landscape. They had shown some older work, work from 1974. The paintings that I mentioned to you uh, that were look like draped hides uh, or draped fabric, actually. Um, a couple of them were in one of these shows. I forget which of those two shows. And both very strong, very wonderful shows, but I, I do have names that I can't pull up. Anyway, um, a dealer in New York uh, named Stuart Morrison, uh, whose gallery, uh, he is the director of a gallery named Hales. Hales is, has uh, two outlets. There's one of them. The first one is in London, and then there's one in New York. He saw my work at one of these shows in North Carolina or Virginia or <clears throat> Southern State, came home and called me and asked me if I would like to show some of my work with him. And I explained to him I had a dealer and that maybe he could talk to her about that. And um, as it worked out, they never spoke. Um, I don't think my then dealer, June Kelly, really wanted to talk to anybody, but she had gone through, she was going through a lot of complex things with her own life. So at any rate, to make a long story short, he offered to show my work. Uh, this was six months later. And, uh, after coming out here and talking to me and, uh, anyway, we went, around and around for a while. Uh, about six months later, he offered to show my work and I accepted him and left my longtime dealer friend, June Kelly. Uh, I have to tell you that was emotionally hard for me. Uh, it isn't easy to split up with someone because I have the greatest respect for June Kelly and all that she's done. Uh, but it was, was difficult for me to leave. But I felt that um, for a lot of reasons, it made sense to leave at that time. In 2015, I had had a, a retrospective at the NMAI. And so the, the, and that show opened up a lot of opportunities for me. Uh, a lot of people saw that work that would never see it otherwise because the show traveled around the country a lot. And it was seen by literally millions of people, apparently. Uh, so that 
that opened up doors because a lot of people saw the work who had never seen it before, like the folks from the Whitney. And um, other museums saw it. So that was a huge, huge boost to my career. And then uh, a couple years later, Stuart Morrison came along and uh, offered me to show my work. So I moved to Stuart, uh, to uh, Hale's Gallery, where I now sell, uh, show and sell work. Uh, he has, um, he has been able to sell all of the remaining uh, figure paintings I had from the early 1970s. Uh, all placed in important collections. Um, and by the way, June sold some of those too. It wasn't just him. Uh, and he has, but he's placed a lot of work in collections. I've also shown with um, um, Charles Froelich in on the West Coast, and he has placed some things in, in also in important collections. Um, so since that NMAI show, my work has been, um, um, entered a number of really important collections around the country. So I have to credit a lot of my recent success to the NMAI, to, uh, Kathleen Ash Milby and David Penny who curated that show and who did, uh, it, 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 that show was hugely important to my career. Oh, Kathleen's wonderful. Kathleen's wonderful. Oh, she's the best. She's absolutely the best. Um, she used to live nearby and, and now she, of course she's way the heck out in Portland. Well, there you are. Um, anyway, so that these two people and this show at the NMAI, this opportunity to show at the NMAI, was huge for me and made a tremendous difference in my overall career. Um, which brings me to the advice that I have for young people. Don't, don't throw out all your work. Don't dump it. Don't take your work seriously. And if you believe it's good and strong, Save it, store it, take care of it. Um, when something is awful and you know it's awful, get it out, get rid of it. Because if you don't, it'll end up in some museum basement. Uh, just get rid of things that you think are not strong. But things that you think have value, keep. Roll them up if you must, but... Roll them carefully. Learn how to do it right. Learn how to take care of your work and keep it. Work on archival materials so that your work will last. And believe in yourself. Have the confidence to believe that one of these days someone will see that work and say, oh my gosh, look at that. The world turns and the world views turn. Uh, I live in a totally different environment than I did, artistic environment than, than I did 
uh, when I started out, which is I have a 60 year career, let's face it. So, uh, the world changes. Um, believe in yourself and be persistent and keep on working. You know, the, the important thing to do is to get into that studio and make your art and then respect it. And you respect yourself enough to preserve your work. That's it. Okay, thank you so much. This was this was really wonderful. I really appreciate the time you've, you've given us. Well, it's my great pleasure. My great pleasure. It really is. I, I tend to, to babble on because part of uh, part of that is that I've had a very long and complex career. But I must say it's been a lot of fun. I've had an awfully good time. I've had a wonderful life making art. Truly a great American artist indeed. Well, that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Kay again for her time and sharing her story with us. This was absolutely fascinating and such an honor to be able to spend time with her and listen to her story and to share space with her. This was absolutely fabulous. And I want to thank you for coming back to us for season four of this podcast. I can't say enough about what's coming uh, this this season. I'm really excited about it. I'm really glad you're back. And yeah, so let's uh, let's jump into the season and see what great things are coming because there's some really good stuff coming. So please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Facebook, across social media, and at our plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. And if you have a suggestion for me, for someone to talk to, please reach out to me and let me know. I'd really like to hear from you. Well, You take care, and we will see you next week. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.